Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today is Semantic Threat Researcher Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about the latest activity by the North Korean espionage group Stonefly, our recent research on commodity malware, how attackers are transitioning to the new Bumblebee loader, and how Chinese state-sponsored actors are targeting Russia with an intelligence gathering campaign. But first, uh, let's turn to Ransomware Bridget, because you've got a story about a potentially very interesting development in the ransomware world. Yeah, so there are indications in the last week or two that the Rebel, which we also know as Sodanokibi ransomware, um, may be back, basically back in action. So um, for background, I suppose, Rebel's operations were shut down in October um, last year, which I'm sure we probably discussed at the time. And Russian authorities then revealed in January um, this year that they had actually arrested several, several members of the Rebel gang after they received intelligence from US authorities that had allowed them to identify those members of the gang. And that in itself was kind of a highly unusual thing to happen as, you know, we have rarely seen Russian authorities take steps against the ransomware gangs that operate out of the country. And Rebel's downfall, I suppose, last year began really after the Kaseya ransomware attack that occurred in kind of the middle of last year, I think July, and which was um, very high profile. Um, and as we often see, I suppose, at ransomware actors, sometimes when they go for these big fish, when they carry out an attack that is maybe too high profile, the attention that that attracts then from law enforcement can then force the actors offline um, for a period anyway. And we did see that happen in the aftermath of, in the aftermath of Kaseya for Rebel, where they went quiet for a couple of months. Um, but they did then come back online for a while before disappearing, you know, seemingly permanently in October last year then. Uh, so now it looks like they're back? Yeah, so we saw the first indications probably a week or two ago um, when the gang's tour sites appeared to come back online. Now the sites were redirecting to what appears to be a new operation that appears to have been underway since at least mid-December last year. Um, and this site was being promoted on Rutor, um, which is a foreign marketplace that focuses mainly on Russian-speaking regions. And the new site was hosted on a different domain, but did lead to the original tour site that Rebel used when it was active. And this new leak site provided details on conditions for prospective new affiliates of the ransomware who would allegedly get an improved version of the Rebel ransomware and an 80-20 split on ransom profits. Um, and the site listed 26 pages of victims, most of them from old Rebel attacks with just two previously um, unseen victims listed in that and it wasn't really clear, though, at the time what was happening when this occurred as, well, they, you know, it looked like tour sites are back. There was no sign of a new sample of Rebel at that time. And there was some speculation that, you know, this could potentially have been some kind of honeypot being set up by law enforcement to kind of try and trap ransomware affiliates and that perhaps Rebel wasn't back at all. Um, but this week, then, uh, the discovery of a new malware sample does appear to have confirmed that the Rebel gang, in fact, is back. Um, and this latest sample is considered to be the first kind of concrete indication of new rebel activity, really. So multiple security researchers um, were able to confirm to Beeping, Beeping Computer that the discovered rebel sample used by this new operation is compiled from rebel source code and does include new changes. Um, however, unusually enough, this sample does not encrypt files, as would be expected, obviously. Um, though it does create a ransom note that is almost identical to previous ransom notes that rebel would have sent out. 
And while it's not clear, I would say exactly what is happening with this new operation just yet, um, security researcher fellow security did tell Deeping Computer that one of Rebel's original core developers was the person who would relaunch the ransomware operation. Um, so we will have to keep watch for any new Rebel ransomware attacks, perhaps that may occur, any further, you know, indications to see if the gang is truly back operating. You know, there are a few odd things about this return, you know, including obviously the fact that the latest sample doesn't appear to actually encrypt files. But also when we when ransomware operations rebrand, typically, you know, after something high profile has happened, they typically do it, you know, to evade law enforcement or to evade sanctions that might prevent the payment of ransoms. So they often return under a new identity. I mean, we saw that, you know, with Dark Side becoming Black Matter and many other examples. So it is, I suppose, it's a little bit odd to see Rebel being, I guess, so kind of obvious about its return rather than attempt to come back as some kind of new operation. Yeah, there's a couple of unanswered questions there. All right. Um, maybe the brand name was too strong to abandon. Who knows? Uh, but that's not the only thing that's been going on in the cybercrime world, because I gather uh, there's a new loader that's uh, generating a bit of a buzz. Yes. So there's a new loader called Bumblebee, uh, which is reportedly being used by malicious actors who uh, previously used very well-known loaders like Bizarre Loader and Ice ID. Um, and we know those loaders were frequently used in ransomware attacks. Um, and according to Proofpoint, um, campaigns distributing this Bumblebee loader began in March 2022, but with the researchers saying that they had not seen any bizarre loader activity since February of this year. So this led the researchers basically to conclude that Bumblebee is, if not a direct replacement for Bazaar Loader, then certainly you know a new tool that has been used by actors that appear to have historically preferred the Bazaar Loader malware. Um, and Bumblebee has already been seen being used in campaigns that have led on to kind of or have you know culminated in ransomware attacks. Um, the researcher said the loader does appear to still be in some kind of development. Um, and it's written in C and similar to Bazaar Loader and Ice ID, you know, it does appear to act as a downloader. You know, typically what we see a downloader for next stage payload, next stage payloads like Cobalt Strike, Silver, Measure Pressure, and Shellcode. Um, all tools that we, you know, commonly see used in pre-ransomware activity. And Proofpoint said that at least three different threat actors appear to have been using Bumblebee in campaigns and that different techniques have been used to deliver the loader, including emails carrying ISO or HTML files, attachments, as well as emails generated by contact forums. And the researchers said that they concluded that Bumblebee was most likely at the moment being deployed by initial access brokers you know, uh, basically actors who infiltrate major targets and then sell on that access to others, generally ransomware um, actors. Now, Bazaar Loader, you know, had a big impact um, and was something that we saw a lot when it was active, with it being used in many attacks. So I guess it'll be interesting to see now if, I suppose, Bumblebee is adopted in the same kind of manner as Bazaar Loader and ICID were in the past. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Bazaar Loader link and, and the ransomware link uh, mean that this is a, a tool that uh, everyone should start paying attention to, really. Um, sure. And then finally, um, unrelated to cybercrime, uh, I guess you wanted to talk about uh, Chinese uh, state-sponsored actors who have been seen targeting Russia uh, in what looks like an intelligence-gathering campaign. Yeah, so the Chinese APT group, uh, known as Mustang Panda, or Bronze President, appears to be targeting Russian officials um, in its kind of latest activity in what looks like an, uh, an intelligence gathering um, campaign, according to new research that came from our friends at SecureWorks. And this campaign, it starts as a phishing email that delivers 
a malicious executable file that is disguised as a Russian language PDF document. And this file name refers to a Russian city called Blagovichensk, which is close to the border with China and is home to the Blagovichensky Red Banner Border Guard Detachment. With secure work saying that this suggests that the file name was chosen likely to target officials or military personnel who are familiar with that region. When the executable is launched, multiple other files are fetched, including a decoy document that purports to outline European Union sanctions against Belarus, a malicious CLL loader and encrypted plug experience, as well as a digitally signed .exe file. Now, PlugX is known to be used by many different China-based attack groups, um, so its presence wouldn't wouldn't be considered enough for attribution. But um, SecureWorks said it was able to connect this campaign to Mustang Panda, Mustang Panda, um, specifically based on the infrastructure used, which it said was used in a Mustang Panda campaign in October of 2020. Now, the activity in this campaign, you know, it's not particularly unusual, unusual or notable for the kind of type of it's kind of typical intelligence gathering campaigns, you know, we'd see carried out by Chinese threat actors. But I guess what is interesting is the targeting, you know, as it's reasonably unusual to see Chinese APT groups going after Russia, you know, with the two countries considered to be sort of allies to a degree. Um, and also Mustang Panda generally targets victims in Southeast Asia. And um, so the switch to Russia is also unusual for it. And it appears likely to potentially be an impact of the Ukraine invasion, you know, with the current sort of geopolitical situation, maybe making Russia more intelligent interests than it previously was for China? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. All right. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw a, a China on Russia attack. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, you know, that's how rare it is. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely unusual. So it's it's an interesting development um, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, for sure. But um, let's turn to you now, Dick, because we have put out a few pieces of research in the last couple of weeks as well that I know you've been involved in. So maybe we'll be we start with Stonefly. So we published a blog, I think it was last week, detailing some recent activity by this North Korean group. Um, but I guess maybe before we get into the specifics of that, perhaps we can start by talking about, I suppose, who Stonefly are. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good um, starting point, all right. Uh, okay, to my mind, um, Stonefly are probably the most interesting of the North Korean-sponsored cyber espionage groups. Um, they're known under various names uh, in the industry, such as Dark Soul, Black Mine, Operation Troy, and Silent Cholima, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And they've been around for quite some time now, um, since at least 2009. And I think the first interesting thing about this group is that they started life um, as very much your typical North Korean um, cyber operation. Uh, in other words, they were noisy, they were disruptive, and they weren't very sophisticated. So they first came to attention uh, in 2009 when they launched a distributed denial of service attack against um, a number of government websites in um, South Korea and the US and a number of uh, financial sector websites as well. Um, they popped up again in 2011 uh, with more DDoS attacks, um, but interestingly, they also began using a custom backdoor against some of their targets, which uh, indicated that uh, they'd added espionage to their operations alongside uh, the more disruptive uh, type of stuff. And then a couple of years later, they were back again, uh, and they were linked to the Jokra disk wiping attacks. 
Uh, these were against a number of South Korean banks and broadcasters. Uh, and then a little while later, uh, DDoS attacks. Um, but then somewhere along the way, between then and now, uh, this group completely pivoted and morphed into something else entirely. Um, that happened uh, at the latest around 2019, and, and it possibly could have happened even earlier. Um, and now uh, they specialize solely in highly selective targeted attacks against uh, what's best described as high-value targets. Um, so there are attacks that appear to be carried out in order to acquire uh, very sensitive or classified intellectual property or technologies. Um, and while they've attacked uh, quite a diverse range of uh, organizations in recent years, um, I think the one uh, they, this is the one thing that kind of seems to be the common thread amongst all of them. Uh, the other notable thing is that virtually all of the technologies they seem to be interested in uh, potentially have a military application as well as uh, civilian applications. Right. I mean, that's definitely um, pretty notable. All right. And I know we talked on the podcast last week with Alan Neville about Operation Dream Job, which is another North Korean sponsored campaign that has been targeting, you know, various industry sectors in recent years, also with the same goals, apparently, in pursuit of IP and various technologies. So, I mean, is there much difference between these two operations? And are they kind of two teams working towards the same goal, do we think? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, they're certainly distinct actors. And while the, the motivation behind both campaigns is broadly similar, I think there's some, some notable differences between the two as well. Uh, so Operation Dream Job, I guess you could describe it as it's definitely designed to steal IP, but it seems to be a bit more of a, a wide ranging trawl across uh, particular sectors. They seem to focus on one or two sectors at a time. And then Stonefly seems to be way more specialized. Uh, we don't come across them that often, um, but when we do, uh, the target is invariably very, very interesting. Um, so if you had to guess, uh, they seem to be some sort of elite team who are kind of like uh, tasked with going after the super sensitive information. Um, now, it, it's quite difficult to be uh, very specific on the types of things that they're going after because it's so... Um, um, it's so niche that, the, you know, their, their targets could be e easily identified if you went into more detail. But what I can say is that we've seen them uh, targeting things like um, advanced material materials research, um, engineering companies that are involved both in civilian and military projects. Uh, they're definitely interested in nuclear technologies, um, and they're also interested in things like satellite imaging and uh, systems belonging to other countries' militaries. So on its own, you, you could say, yeah, you know, each target, you know, has a potential military or civilian application. Uh, but if you look at the sum total of, of all of their targets that we're aware of over the years, it's kind of, it's a bit hair-raising, you know. Uh, if, you were, if you were building missiles, whether nuclear or conventional, or things like advanced submarines, like they're all the kinds of technologies that you could potentially be interested in. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a little bit concerning. So maybe can you tell us, what can you tell us about their most recent activity that we've seen? Yeah, um, so their most recent target um, is 
uh, highly specialized uh, engineering company, um, and they work in both the energy sector, uh, but also they, they 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 work with military as well. Um, so it's your typical stonefly target, in other words. Um, and in this case, uh, it seems that the means of entry into the organization was an exploit of the Log4j uh, vulnerability on a public-facing VMware View server. Um, I say most likely uh, because we, we saw evidence of the exploit being run and then within 24 hours, um, confirmed Stonefly activity began on, on this machine. So given this timing, you'd say it's quite likely that these two events were linked and, and that that was their way in. Um, so from this initial toehold, uh, they managed to move um, across the organization's network and access um, 18 other computers. Uh, in the attack, they used an updated version of their custom backdoor, which we call Preft, um, uh, other companies called D-Track. Um, aside from that, uh, the tooling is kind of interesting because they made heavy use of uh, a number of publicly available tools. Uh, so they used our old friend, the credential thumping tool, Mimikatz, to jump credentials. They also used Putty, Putty's PSCP command line application. Um, we think to um, exfiltrate data from, from infected computers. Uh, they used Tree Proxy, Tiny Proxy Server, which is a, a publicly available proxy tool. They also used WinSCP, uh, an open source SSH file transfer tool. Um, again, presumably to exfiltrate data or even possibly upload data to a compromised computer. Um, and then in the lateral movement phase of the attack, they used Invoke the Hash, which is um, another publicly available um, pass the hash uh, utility. It's PowerShell based. And WMI exec.py, um, which is a publicly available in packet tool. Uh, that can be used to run WMI commands. Um, with most of these tools, uh, there was some masquerading involved. Uh, and by that, I mean they, they renamed the files to resemble something else or, or something a bit or appear a bit more innocuous. So for example, the last tool I mentioned there, WMI exec was renamed notepad.exe, uh, uh, tree proxy was renamed svhost.exe uh, and so on. Okay, and so do we know that if this attack was successful? It's always hard to say because, you know, you never really uh, kind of get a, a picture of, of what uh, was exfiltrated. Um, but they certainly had access for a few days. Um, so that's enough time to, to look around um, whether they found what they were looking for, what they thought were, they was there. And, and if they did, if they were able to extract it, uh, remains unknown at this point. Okay, right. Thanks, Dick. I mean, they're definitely an interesting um, group that you'd want to be keeping an eye on, I would imagine. Yeah, they're going uh, to watch. All right, yeah. For sure. But let's move on now because we do have another piece of research as well that we should discuss. Um, and that's a new white paper that we published recently on commodity malware that we shared with our Semantic Enterprise Security Complete customers. So I guess maybe for listeners, let's start at the start. Um, so maybe what is commodity malware? Uh, yeah, commodity malware um, is uh, a term we've been using ourselves or a range of tools that we've seen cropping up a lot in recent years during our investigations. We refer to them as commodity because they are publicly available and they're either available for purchase or, or they're open source 
Uh, and indeed of the commercially available tools, there's also cracked versions um, floating around on underground forums and whatnot. Um, so we'd see commodity malware as being distinct from custom malware, which uh, is developed by the attackers themselves for their own use or for use by um, uh, authorized affiliates or associates. So commodity malware isn't a term we invented ourselves. It goes way back, um, and I think its meaning has shifted subtly over the past few years because uh, at the time the phrase was coined, uh, custom developed tools were seen as the hallmark of skilled attackers, and then commodity tools were seen as uh, the preserve of people who just uh, didn't have the skills to create their own, so they had to go out and buy them. Um, we have a really different situation now because commodity malware is uh, has such powerful functionality. Um, a lot of the tools uh, being used today and discussed in the paper, they're professionally developed, they're continuously updated. And I guess the economies of scale involved mean that um, they benefit from way more developer time uh, than even a, a really well-resourced attacker could devote to uh, tool development. Okay, so these tools are widely available, but you say they're professionally developed for the most part, but who is developing them then? Yeah, uh, most of today's commodity malware shares a common thread, and that is that virtually all of these tools were ostensibly created for legitimate reasons, um, either one as penetration testing tools or number two, as kind of proof of concept type tools to demonstrate various uh, security weaknesses. However, uh, malicious, malicious usage of these tools uh, has just exploded in recent years. Uh, and we're now at the stage where uh, malicious usage vastly outweighs uh, legitimate uses. Okay, well, with that being the case then, could we also describe them as dual use tools? Arguably you could. Um, However, uh, I think that you can draw a distinction between uh, these commodity tools and true, uh, as I'll call it, dual-use tools. Firstly, um, even the legitimate use case of commodity malware is to mimic malicious behavior. And then secondly, unlike um, a lot of the dual-use tools we'd see, malicious usage of commodity malware accounts for the vast majority of, of cases that we see. Okay, I guess that's a fair enough distinction, all right. So maybe can you give us then some of the examples of the tools that we discuss in this paper? Uh, yeah, I sure can. Um, the first one we looked at was, was Cobalt Strike. Uh, indeed, I think Cobalt Strike kind of uh, was the tool that prompted the creation of this paper. And we, we were originally thinking of just writing a paper about Cobalt Strike alone, and then we, we broadened it out into, into tools of a, of a similar nature. Um, so Cobalt Strike is something that we've mentioned a lot on this podcast before, and I think a lot of people with an interest in cybersecurity have probably come across it. Um, uh, it comes up time and time again in our own investigations. Um, so what is it? Uh, it is marketed and sold as a penetration testing toolkit. Um, so it allows the user to create a whole load of different types of tools, and they're intended to emulate what capable attackers can do. So uh, its intended use is for, is for use by penetration testers. Um, so uh, what penetration testing is, is that um, many organizations will at regular intervals, maybe every year or so, 
hire a penetration tester to try and break into their network. Um, and they'll come back uh, to the organization with a report on, on how, how that went. Um, so for their customer, it's a good way of identifying uh, weaknesses in their security posture and areas for improvement. So that's the legit use case. Um, however, malicious usage of Cobalt Strike is running absolutely rampant at the moment. Uh, so much so uh, that while yes, we, we do on occasion see uh, Cobalt Strike being used by penetration testers, the overwhelming majority of incidents involved involving Cobalt Strike that uh, we and the Threat Hunter team have investigated were malicious. Yeah, I mean, certainly Cobalt Strike is just a name we see all the time. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe, can we explain why it's so popular with malicious actors? Yeah, I mean, yeah, attackers absolutely love it. Um, and I think when you look at it in a bit more detail, it's probably easy to see why. Uh, first of all, you know, as we mentioned, it's professionally developed, it's always updated. And because it's a pen testing tool, the developers are always trying to keep pace with or stay ahead of security. Um, and it's while it's an entire toolkit, like loads of things to choose from, I think one tool in particular is very popular, and that's Cobalt Strike Beacon, which is a highly customizable multi-purpose payload. Um, it has lots of different features that are potentially useful, such as the ability to execute PowerShell scripts, log keystrokes, screenshots, download files, install other payloads. Um, but what attackers really like about Beacon is the, the stealthiness involved. Um, so it runs in memory, uh, and that means it never writes anything to disk. And more importantly, it's uh, really highly configurable. So it's, it's quite trivial for an attacker to create a hitherto unseen variant that won't be detected by a, a file hash-based detection technology. And even if you know that newly compiled variant with uh, new hitherto uh, unseen of, uh, obfuscation techniques doesn't work. The attackers then also have the option of attempting to abuse a whitelisted applications such as PowerShell in order to load it into the memory. Uh, and it has lots of other uh, uh, interesting features that allows the attacker to modify the command and control communications uh, to, to make them mimic traffic associated with legit applications on the victim's environment. And so, yeah, you know, lots of, uh, uh, of reasons that it appeals to attackers. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a powerful tool, so it is easy to understand, I suppose, why it would be so popular with attackers. But who exactly is using Cobalt Strike in attacks then? Uh, everyone and every, everybody nearly. <laughs> uh, no, there's a huge array of attackers uh, leveraging it right now. Um, everyone right from, from cybercrime operations to state-sponsored espionage actors. Um, so first of all, it's very widely used in uh, targeted ransomware attacks. Um, and it's probably the most frequently seen tool uh, we would come across in the attack chain uh, of a lot of ransomware actors. Uh, in some cases, it may be the only piece of malware used by the attacker other than the ransomware payload itself. Um, that's because it kind of acts as something of a, uh, it's like a, a Swiss army knife for, for ransomware actors. Uh, so it has this functionality that can provide the links uh, between um, parts of the attack chain where like living off the land techniques or legit tools may fall short, such as uh, the 
command and control um, communication, uh, the ability to inject into other processes or kind of install other tools along the way. Um, and the fact that it's fairly trivial for the attacker to compile a new version of COBOL Strike means that they can, even though it's malware, they can try and minimize the risk of detection. But it's not just the ransomware uh, gangs using it. Uh, it's also state-sponsored espionage groups, even the most uh, advanced ones. And a really, really good example of this is SolarWinds. Uh, now, most listeners may be familiar with SolarWinds, but we'll quickly recap. Um, the attack was attributed to the Russian-based uh, espionage group that we call uh, Fritallery, uh, also known as APT29 or Cozy Bear. Um, and they compromised the update mechanism for SolarWinds Orion, which is uh, infrastructure monitoring software that's used by a lot of big companies. And it allowed them to deliver a backdoor Trojan called Sunburst to any Orion user who downloaded an update to the software during a nine-month compromise period. Uh, so this was a software supply chain attack initially, and it gave the attackers a foothold onto the network of approximately 18,000 different organizations. Um, however, there was only a small subset of organizations that were selected for further malicious activity, suggesting that these were the, the real uh, targets of interest to the attackers, um, and the vast majority of victims were then collateral damage. So in these targeted organizations, there was um, some additional uh, pieces of custom malware known as Teardrop and Raindrop uh, deployed in the victim's environment. But each of these was used to develop, deliver what was the final payload for these attacks, and that was Cobalt Strike. Um, and what's noteworthy about the Solar Winds attack is that while it's obvious that you know uh, the attackers had clearly had the resources and the skill to write custom malware uh, needed to carry out uh, an advanced software supply chain attack. They were content to rely on Cobalt Strike as their ultimate payload uh, in what must have been a very risky and, and resource-intensive operation. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Obviously, they felt you know Cobalt Strike could do what they what they needed done, and they didn't need to waste their time developing further malware instead. You yeah, know exactly. Yeah. And so, were there any other tools then discussed in the paper apart from Cobalt Strike? Um, yeah, we, we do look at a good few other tools, um, and what we try and do is give examples um, of each tool discussed of, of how we've seen them being leveraged in attacks. Um, so aside from Cobalt Strike, uh, we also take a look at some of the other penetration testing frameworks that we've seen being abused, such as Metasploit and a couple of others like that. Uh, we also take a look at Mimikatz, which we were discussing earlier, which was originally created as a, as a kind of proof of concept um, tool about, about credential dumping, but it is open source and it's continually updated with newer credential dumping techniques. And, and Mimikatz is almost as ubiquitous as Cobalt Strike, and indeed it has been incorporated into Cobalt Strike itself on a number of other penetration testing frameworks. Um, and it's also inspired the creation of a, a number of other uh, open source credential dumping tools such as Lasagna. Um, so yeah, good good few uh, threats covered in it. Yeah, a lot of good information um, contained in that, definitely, and a lot of familiar names at Mimikatz and Cobalt Strike, like definitely things we see being used by malicious actors like all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's great, Dick. Thanks for that. I think that's all we have time for this week. Um, so if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on uh, all the action. You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel. 
And if you'd like to read our latest research, including our work on Stovefly, you can check out our blog, which can be found at semantic-enterprise-blogs.security.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again in two weeks time. Until then, thank you and goodbye.